um, David and how he was uh, operating in um, in strength and in zeal uh, and, and, and in a future calling, but without brokenness. And we talked about the essential um, aspect of God's breaking in, in the life of a man before he can really use that man uh, to any great degree. The prophet Jeremiah, uh, it's a very familiar scripture, told Jeremiah in chapter 17 and 18 and 19 to go to the house of the potter, the, the man who works with clay. And he said, I'm going to speak to you there. And so Jeremiah went down there and he watched the potter and the potter took a lump of clay and he formed it into uh, you know, a, a, a vessel, a vase or whatever it is that he was making. And in the process of um, making it, it, it says that the vessel became marred or, or, or tarnished. It broke apart uh, in the hands of the potter and it was ruined. You know. And then he saw the potter take that same lump of clay and make it into something else. And then the Lord said to Jeremiah, and he applied it, and he said, Cannot I do with you, O house of Israel, as this potter has done with this clay? And, you know, the, the lesson um, was not only that God is the one who shapes and takes something and, and molds it into something of value, but even the fact that the vessel was marred was an important part of the, the lesson. Uh, because what God was essentially saying to Jeremiah is he's saying that this is my way. My, this is the way it works, the way that I shape something, is that I make a vessel and then that, that vessel is marred. That vessel has to become broken and then I remake it into something else. And, and, and that happens in every life. And so what happens to you and I is that we give our lives to the Lord and he begins to make us into something. And it, it's a vase, it's a bowl, it's a cup. And it begins to hold things. I remember in my own life, growing up in the Lord, just as a young Christian, and, and, and I would hear something in a Bible study. You know, I would hear a testimony about someone who uh, rose up early in the morning and prayed. And so I'd put that in my cup. Lord, I'm going to do that. And then I would hear you know, some treasure, treasured truths. And I'd say, Lord, I'm never going to forget those things. I'm going to commit those things to memory. And then I would hear the Word of God talk about certain behaviors that were not acceptable to God. And I would say, God, I'm not going to do those things. And then I would hear about other things that were acceptable. And I would say, I am going to do those things. And then I'd hear the testimony of a missionary and what his lifestyle was like. And I would say, God, I'm going to be like that. And then, you know, and it would go on and on and on. And all the while what's happening is I'm filling up this vessel full of all these promises and pledges and desires and zeal and behaviors that are more of conforming to something that I heard rather than something that's been worked into my person from the inside out. And over time, what happened to me is that the vessel became so full of all these things that I had to remember, all these things that I had to perform, all these things that I had to do and keep, and all these things that I had to be in order to please the Lord, that eventually the, the, the membrane of the vessel got thinner and thinner because I couldn't hold it all in. I couldn't, hold, I couldn't hold it all together. It was too much for me and my own strength to perform all those things. But yet I felt like I had to hold those things together if I expected God's blessing or if I wanted to be faithful to God, and I wanted to be faithful to God. And so I tried with everything I could to hold all of that together, to be the super Christian um, man or, or young man that was going to be something for God or do something for God. And so you go, you go in that for, for as long as you can, 
and then eventually there's a crack and and the the membrane breaks uh, and you realize something falls out you know or there's a failure of some sort in the whole thing and so you try to plug that hole or hide it because you don't you don't want to displease God and you certainly don't want anybody else to know that that you're you know you're weak so you kind of hide that and you hide it as long as you can but then there's a crack somewhere else and eventually you know you you either have to put on this whole hip, hypocritical thing where you become two different people one in public and one in private or you have to give in to the brokenness and you have to realize god i'm not strong enough i can't do this and when that happens the vessel becomes marred everything spills out on the ground and you just i i, I can't do it i'm not i can't be a christian i can't follow you god that's brokenness that's the vessel becoming marred and it's essential it's necessary it has to happen because until it happens it's christianity in our strength it's christianity with us conforming ourselves into the image of god and not allowing god to conform us into the image of christ himself when god conforms us into the image of christ ourselves it's his light shining out of a broken vessel that glorifies him because it's jesus and not us when it's us doing it in our strength we get prideful and lift it up because we think somehow it has something to do with us the breaking is essential we must come to the end of our own works of our own righteousness of our own promises of our own abilities and come to the place of surrender where where it's nothing but jesus everything i am i am by the grace of god everything i'm not i'm ashamed of but god change it reform it then O lord in Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes it this, this way, and he picks up on this illustration of the, the, the potter, the clay, the vessel. He says in um, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 5, he says, For we preach not ourselves. In other words, it's not us. We're not preaching our own life, our own discipline, our own devotion our own gifts, our own achievements, our merit badges. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and all we are, ourselves, are your servants for Jesus' sake. And here's how it works. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that's in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. He has shined in our hearts, not in our flesh, not on our skin or in our faces, not in our words, but he shined in our hearts, the deepest place, inside where no one else can see. That's where the light is. He shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, he says, verse 7, we have this treasure, the treasure of God's light, of God's Son and his glory in us, this treasure in earthen vessels. Your translation might say jars of clay. That's what it means. An earth, a vessel of earth is a vessel of dirt, a vessel of clay. We, ha we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. For we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, not forsaken, cast down, not destroyed, 
always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered to death, brokenness, for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death works in us, but life in you. The only way for the light that's in us to come out is through brokenness. It isn't until the earthen vessel is cracked and marred that the light that's on the inside can come out. Remember when Gideon took his 300 men and they faced the Midianites of 115,000? How did they defeat him? He said, take an earthen vessel, put a light inside, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, break it. And when they broke those earthen vessels, the 115,000 Midianites saw the lights come out and they saw that they were surrounded and they, get, they could not fight. And so the brokenness is essential in order for the light to be God's. And it's the best thing that can happen to us when we're broken, when we come to the, to the point when we realize that we can't do it. I can't hold all this up. I can't remember everything I have to remember. I can't do everything I'm supposed to do. I can't be what I'm supposed to be. I have nothing. And, and, and we just, we let go and it breaks. That's the hardest thing and the best thing that will ever happen to a human being. Because it's the beginning now of God elevating the life. And so what's going to happen in David now, or in Second Sam, or First Samuel 26, is David, the membrane, the membrane is going to get real thin and he's going to quit. He's going to break. And it's going to be the beginning. It's amazing how quickly after this he becomes the king, after the breaking happens. Uh, notice with me in chapter 26, verse 1. It says that the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon? Now, this is almost exactly the same verse that we had back in chapter 23 um, when when Saul was uh, chasing David the last time, chapter 23, verse 19, when the Ziphites came to Saul. And we, we actually commented on this verse a couple of weeks ago that when David took things into his own hands, he had a temporary reprieve from the pressure, but it brought him right back to where he began. Because here we are again. The Ziphites, the same people, do the same thing that led to David's last episode when he cut the border of, of Saul's skirt uh, off. And so David, right back where he started, anytime we seek to take a shortcut by trying to help God out, it's actually a long cut because you're going to go around the mountain and you're going to end up right back where you were. And that's, that's what happens here. Uh, some time has gone by. We don't even know how long, maybe six months, maybe a year. But all that time now, David's right back where he was. Now, the good news is it's not wasted time still because God used that time to teach David some other lessons with Nabal and things that will help him in tonight's or this morning's uh, passage, you know, what we'll see. So it says, so Saul arose in verse two and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness 
And he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. And so David now hears about this uh, um, pursuit of Saul coming back again. And it says in verse 4 that David, therefore, sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. Understood means that he confirmed it. He, in other words, he's like, no, you're kidding me. He's here again? Because last time when David spared Saul's life, David said, I'm sorry, David, I'm, I'm going to stop. You know, and now David hears, wait, he's coming again? Even after we're, we're going to go through this again? And, and, and this is his fixed purpose and very deed. So David arose and he came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his host... And Saul lay in a trench, and the people pitched round about him. So David sneaks into the camp at night where they're sleeping. He sees Saul. He sees Abner. So David answer, or then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, the brother of Joab. Now, I should remember those names because they're going to become um, key figures in David's administration when he becomes king. Abishai and Joab, the sons of Zeruiah. Uh, they become David's chief men, um, both a blessing and a burden to David as the story goes on. But we meet them here for the first time. And so he said to uh, Ahimelech and Abishai, Joab's brother, who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his whole bolster by his head. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Then said Abishai to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear, even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. In other words, I won't miss. I won't have to, I won't have to swing twice. Like, this is the opportunity that you've been waiting for, David. He was in your clutches once, and you let him go. God has now brought him back into your clutches. Let me just go in one strike. We'll be out of here. This whole nightmare will be over. We'll never have to deal with this again. Now, thank God David had a little bit of wisdom. Notice what it says in verse 10 or 9. And David said to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? No, no, Abishai, I have learned very, very clearly by now that this is the hand of the Lord in my life. And regardless of where Saul's at with God, it's not my place to remove him uh, from, from being where he is. God must do it. I am not going to touch it. Men, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that this can be burned into the impression of your soul. Is that if God has raised up some source of affliction, some source of trial or fire or refinement in your life that is of discomfort to you, do not Take action to remove it from your life yourself. Do not take a fire extinguisher to the fire that God has ignited to refine you because it will only be to your detriment. It's a paradox. It's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. But listen to my words. 
the way out of an uncomfortable situation in the Christian life is to embrace the things that you're trying to get away from. Don't run from it, run to it. That's the way out. It's just the way it is in the kingdom of God. When something is uncomfortable, go towards it, not away. So David says, I'm not going to do this. Now David instructs furthermore, verse 10. He says, David said furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him. God will remove this trial from my life in his time. Or his day will come. It will end by natural consequences or by natural causes that the fire will go out or the thing will end or he shall descend into battle and perish there will be some other circumstance that will come in and change the circumstance from what it is the lord forbid that i should stretch forth my hand against the lord's anointed but i pray thee take thou now the spear that is at his head and the cruise of water his his skin of water and let us go david realizes he says this isn't going to last forever this trial this difficulty somehow it's going to end either he'll just die like nabal did nabal died 10 days after david was turned away or He'll die of natural causes if that's God's will or some other circumstance will, will remove this thing. But I'm not going to remove this trial from my life. I'm not going to live the rest of my life wondering if I jumped in front of God, if I did this in a wrong way. And so I'm going to let this burn. I'm going to let it play out. But take the spear, take the water. We'll, we'll at least uh, let Saul know our good intentions. And so verse 12, so David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster and they got them away and no man saw it nor knew it, neither awaked for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. So David doesn't even know it, but God is helping him even in the midst of this by putting a sleep on the men. So David went over to the other side and stood on top of a hill afar off, a great space being between them. And David then cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you that cries to the king? And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? And who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy lord the king? For there came one of thy people, or one of the people, in to destroy the king thy lord. This thing is not good that you have done. As the Lord lives, you are worthy to die because you have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his head. In other words, so now he says, go ahead, look, look for the spear. Look for Saul's spear. Look for Saul's water. Proof that someone was in the camp that the king was vulnerable and you fell asleep at your post on duty. So a huge reproach now to Abner, um, who eventually will defect to David later on. But at this point, his unfaithfulness to Saul is exposed. Well, verse 17 says that Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my, king, my lord, O king. And he says, wherefore doth my Lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand 
Now, therefore, I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, in other words, Saul, if your problem with me is something that God has stirred up within your heart, then let him accept an offering. Let's go to mediation. Let's go to the priest together and we'll get this under the blood of a sacrifice and let's clear the air. If I've done something wrong in the eyes of God before you, let's talk it out before the Lord, David says. Or if it be the children of men, if, if, if this is the result of gossip and slander and things that people have accused me of that aren't true, then cursed be them before the Lord, David says, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, verse 20, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one does hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. He realizes that David had the ability to do him harm if he wanted, and that David didn't do him harm. And so Saul says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. You can take verse 21 and you can circle it in your Bible and you can just put a little note nearby that says this is what it says on Saul's tombstone. This is the testimony of Saul's life uh, before, the, before, uh, before the, 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 the heavens and the earth, that he has erred exceedingly, that he played the fool. That's what Saul's life was. And so David answered and he said, Behold, the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in my eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. David's eyes are in the right place here. He says, I'm not looking at you, Saul, to be my deliverer or my acceptance. He says, let my life be precious in the sight of the Lord to deliver me from all my tribulation. So then said Saul in verse 25 to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. You shall both do great things and also shalt still prevail. Saul realizes at this point, David, I can't destroy you. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Now, at this point, David lets go. The membrane breaks. Watch. And so David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines, and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. Do you see what David does here? He quits. Now, do you remember back a few chapters when David was in Moab? He brought his parents to the king of Moab, and he was dwelling in a stronghold, and the prophet Gad, a prophet of God, came to David and said, David, I have a word from God for you. You are to abide in Judah. You're to abide in the land of Israel. That's the place that God has for you to be. 
That's where God ordained for David to be. And what David does now is he checks himself out of the plan of God. He essentially is saying here, okay, I'm not forsaking God. I'm not going to walk away and serve a different God. God is my God. But in terms of this plan that he has for my life, forget it. This crucible, this furnace, this running, this desert, this wilderness, David says, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of running. My whole life is just running. And as long as Saul still lives, he's going to keep coming after me again and again and again. And the stress of it, the instability of it, I'm done. I quit. I'm out. He says, I'm going to the land of the Philistines. And David begins to backslide here. He begins to say, I can't hold it all together. I can't be who I'm supposed to be. I'm not king material. I don't have what it takes to just endure this beating, this chastisement. If this is the kind of life that it is, I can't live this kind of life. God, let me just be a nominal Christian. I'm going to go work a normal job. I'll go get a job for one of the other kings. I'll run a militia. I'll bring my company there. I'll export it. And, and I'll be something else. But I cannot be what, what you've called me to be, God. I can't take the, the preparation. It's too much for me. I'm done. <laughs> he breaks. And so David arose and he passed over with the 600 men that were with him. And he goes to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. Now, this isn't the first time David's gone to Achish, the king of Gath. Remember, last time he went there, he brought Goliath's sword. <laughs> and he had no men with him at all. And he goes into Gath and, and, and he, he thinks that he's going to go unrecognized. And the men say, hey, look, this is David, the king of Israel. And David realizes, uh-oh, and he starts spitting on his beard and acting like he's insane and he gets you know, thrown out of the thing. Well, now he goes again. And this time he's got some credibility. This time he's got 600 men with him. And this time he's got an axe to grind against the king of Israel, against Saul. And so he says, I'm going to Achish this time, and this time I'm going to sell him on what I can produce for him, and he will give me a job. And that's what happens. And so David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife or ex-wife. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought no more again for him. So what David realizes is that there's only one thing that Saul uh, um, values more than chasing me. And that is his own hide. And he won't go to Gath because he'd be vulnerable in Gath. So if I go there, I'll be safe, essentially. And so David said to Achish, If I have now found grace in your eyes... Let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there, for why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with you? Then Achish gave him Ziklag that day, wherefore Ziklag pertains to the kings of Judah unto this day. So Ziklag, one of the southern border towns of Gaza, uh, as you go on your way towards Egypt. So in the very southern uh, Negev part of Israel. 
And so the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. So David goes on this, this kind of rebellion against the plan of God for his life. He thinks it's over. He's, in his mind, he's put this whole king thing behind him, and he's now going to run his militia uh, out of Ziklag, but he begins to live a lie. He has to live a double life in order to pull this off because in order for him to be successful in the world – he has to play the rebel against God. And he begins a dichotomy here. Watch this, verse, verse 8. And so David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites and the Gezerites and the Amalekites. For those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land as you go to Shur even unto the land of Egypt. And David smote the land. These are still God's enemies. And left neither man nor woman alive, and took away the sheep and the oxen and the asses and the camels and the apparel, and returned. And then he came to Achish. And Achish said, Whither have you made a road today? So David now has to fill out his daily report. You know, he's got, he's working for Achish. And so Achish says, I want to see your dailies. And David brings the dailies, and he, and he, and he lies. And so David said, Well, I, Today I made against the south of Judah and against the south of the Jamelites and against the south of the Kenites. And David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, lest they should tell on us, saying, so did David, and so will be his manner all the while he dwells in the country of the Philistines." And Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly to hate him, therefore he shall be my servant forever. And so David basically, what he does is from Ziklag, he goes out and he destroys Amalekites and Canaanites and Philistines, enemies of Israel. But then when he goes to report what he's been doing each day to Achish, he says that he's attacking Israelites. I've gone into the south of Judah. I've gone in and I've taken out the people of God. And because he left no one alive and no evidence for anyone to be able to come in and contradict his report, Achish then believes him. So David just starts living a lie. He's living a total double life here. And he begins to live a life of covering his tracks. Everything that David has to do for a year and four months is he has to cover his tracks so that nobody can find out what he's really doing or who he really is. Be careful, men, when you start to live a lie. When because, you know, maybe you want to check out of the will of God, or because it's the easier way to go than, than what would be the right way to go, you begin to live a lie, and you've got to begin to cover your tracks. Think about everything you say. Think about every place you've been. Think about everything that you've done. So that no one will find out what's really going on under the surface where no one else can see. Beware when that begins to happen in your life. Do you know why? Two things. Number one is because you cannot live that way without a constant feeling like someone is chasing you. you, you that's what it just feels like all the time. Someone's going to find out. Is someone going to find out? What's going to happen if they do find out? And, and you might think, well, that's a small price to pay. No, it's not. Because that will keep you up at night. That will, that will wear you down. And it's an ache and it's a grow. You'll always have the feeling like someone is chasing you. The second reason why you don't want to live that way is because someone is chasing you. 
when you're living that way. The book of Numbers, the mouth of Moses said the words, and they're true today as much as they were then. Be sure and know what? Your sin will find you out. When you begin to live a double life, you are being chased. You're being chased by your sin. And there is not a man on the planet that can outrun sin, ultimately. You can outrun it for a season. You can make ground on it. You can stay two steps ahead today. You can get three miles ahead tomorrow. But you and I do not have the kind of endurance that it takes to run from sin or outrun sin. Sin will find you. And ultimately, you're going to get caught. David's going to get caught. And and when David gets caught, it's going to mean one of two things. Either he's going to lose his life at the hand of Achish or the Israelites because he's double-crossing both of them, living in Gath. That's double-crossing Israel. Lying to Achish, that's double-crossing Achish. He'll lose his life if he gets found out. Or he becomes Ed Snowden. Right? He, he's a spy. He's, he's, on, he's lost his credibility. Now where does he go? And so David is backing himself into a real bind by living a double life, by taking things into his own hands here. And now it's going to catch up with him, verse 20, uh, chapter 28. And so it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. So now, now you got a problem. Because now the people who David says he's fighting against are actually facing off against the Philistines. And notice what happens. And it says, And Achish said unto David, Know thou assuredly that you shall go out with me to battle, you and your men. You're going to be on the front lines, David, and now I'm going to get to see firsthand how skillful you are in fighting against the people of God. Now David calls his bluff and digs in deeper. He doesn't confess to the lie. He lies more. He says in verse 2, David said to Achish, Surely you shall know what your servant can do. <laughs> Wait till you see me go out and fight these guys. And so Achish said to David, Therefore will I make you keeper of my head forever. Oh, amazing, right? You keep lying. You're going to get yourself into trouble. Now David is told, Okay, you are. if you are successful in this whole thing, I'm going to make you my chief, chief of staff. You're going to be the, the head of my security. In, the, in this whole thing, my chief bodyguard. I'll give you a promotion. And so Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him, and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. So we shift scenes here a little bit. For the better part, um, actually for the remainder of this chapter, we leave David and we shift to Saul. And we're going to see the, the conditions that bring the end of Saul. Saul's almost done. Saul's actually uh, just a couple of days from death at this point. And this is kind of the account of how that went down. And so the Philistines gathered themselves together. And they came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together. And they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Listen, guys, for the Saul, 
For the one who persists in living according to self-will, to the person who is the self-made, self-governed, self-reliant person that seeks to maintain a relationship with God, listen, the day will come if you persist in your self-reliance and lack of surrender when some circumstance will arise in your life that will be so great and so heavy and so far beyond your self-capability that you'll call upon God and you'll find that you no longer have an audience with him for him to hear or to help. And that's where Saul ultimately comes to at this point. Okay, well, I've done things my way all along, but now this is too big for me. Now I want your help, God. And God says, not answering. And so Saul said unto his servants, Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that has a familiar spirit, a demon, basically, a, you know, um, a psychic, at Endor. And so Saul disguised himself and put on other clothing, and he went, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray thee, divine, or, or be a psychic, prophesy by, by Satan unto me by the familiar spirit and bring me him up whom I shall name unto you. So get out your Ouija board, your crystal ball. I want you to um, channel for me a spirit so that I can seek counsel from another world. And the woman said unto him, behold, you know what Saul has done, not knowing that she's talking to Saul, how he has cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul sware to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall no punishment happen to you for this thing. Then said the woman, Okay, whom shall I bring up unto you? In other words, the woman basically looks at him and says, You a cop? You know, and, and he says, no, I'm not a cop. And she says, okay, put out the money. Who do you want me to bring up for you? Let's do business. And so he said, bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. So at this point, she comes to the realization that, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. You just told me no punishment is going to come to me. Not only are you Saul, the one who whose law I'm violating, but I'm in the presence now of Samuel, who was the prophet of God in the land before. Now, this is an extremely interesting and puzzling passage, isn't it? Why did the woman cry out? Either she cries out here, because she knows that what she's into is a scam and something spiritual actually happens that she wasn't expecting, right? And it freaks her out because really, I mean, if, if she really is a, a wizard, you know, or a witch and she has a familiar spirit, then it shouldn't be to her a shock when what she seeks to, to do comes to pass. But somehow this does. She knows she's calling up Samuel. Or, or it really does work Samuel appears and all this so overwhelms her as she realizes that she's involved in something now that's way out of her league, way bigger than she is. The occult, the demonic realm, familiar spirits, 
The dark side is a very real thing, men. It's not, it's not a game. There are spiritual strings attached to the things that happen on earth. And there is very much a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness that are both invisible. You and I are citizens of the kingdom of light. And as such, we are forbidden from dealing with or interacting with the kingdom of darkness. Why is it that God says to the child of God, in fact, he says it to everyone, but, but, but to us most of all, why is it that we're not to mess with psychics or Ouija boards or the occult in any form or fashion? Here's why. Because the Bible says that Satan is the prince over that realm and that he exists to kill, to steal, to destroy, and to lie. Jesus said of Satan that he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So if a child of light goes to the kingdom of darkness to gain intelligence or information, then what are the chances that that information that you're going to get is true information? You can get information. You can open up a realm. You can interact with dark things. But if you do, you are most definitely going to be deceived and you absolutely are not going to be helped. Furthermore, you're bringing yourself under condemnation and judgment from God because God says, don't do it. Now, I don't know if this woman was a scam. I don't know where the line exists between a psychic who is a psychic and a psychic who really is a psychic exists. I don't know how much power those people actually have. And I don't know if this is demonic that happens here or if Samuel actually does appear. That's a debate. Was this actually Samuel that appears before this witch and before Saul and this whole thing? Or was this a demonic apparition seeking to impersonate Saul? My personal leaning on this is that this actually is Samuel. And the reason for that is because it says Samuel said and Samuel appeared. It doesn't say a demon mimicking Samuel, which the Bible probably would say if this wasn't Samuel. Furthermore, the intelligence that Samuel gives comes to pass exactly as he says it. There's no lie in anything that Samuel says. So what's going on here exactly? No idea. But I know that God is allowing something supernatural to happen uh, in this instance. And so the king said unto her, verse 13, don't be afraid for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man comes up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground, and he bowed himself. So he gets down and he, and he does reverence. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that you may make known unto me what I shall do. God's not answering, prayer's not working, prophets aren't talking to me, so I had no other choice. I had to bring you up. And so Samuel said, verse 16, Why then do you ask of me seeing that the Lord is departed from you and has become your enemy. And the Lord has done to him as he spoke by me. 
For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, even unto David. Probably the hardest thing Saul would have to hear in this thing, but he's desperate. And here's why. Verse 18. Here's why you lost the kingdom, Saul. Because you obeyed not the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore has the Lord done this thing unto you this day. The importance of obedience, guys. That when God tells us something, or when God gives gives direction or reveals his will concerning an area of life, it's so important that we obey. Moreover, verse 19, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. You're going to die tomorrow, Saul. This is, this is the last day that you're going to be alive. This is the last sunset you're going to see, the last night that you're going to have a chance to consult a witch. This is going to be the last meal you're going to eat in just a little while. You're going to, tomorrow at this time, you'll be dead. And the Lord also will deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. You're going to lose this battle. So Saul fell straightway all along the earth. He, he, all strength is gone. He just falls prostrate on the ground. And he was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all the day nor all the night. What a horrible thing to come to the last day of your life. And, and that this is the testimony of it, is that you're filled with fear and that you have no strength. I mean, if you can, for one moment, just put yourself on, on your last day. I mean, this could be any of our last days. You know, we don't know when that's going to be. But let's say every one of us in this room, we, we live a full life, a full lifespan. And you come to the last day and on your deathbed, the only thing that grips your life, not a sense of accomplishment, not a sense of reward, not a sense of looking around, you know, the bedside at the family that, that's at your feet that you've raised up, uh, knowing in your heart that you did the best that you could, that you lived a life surrendered to God, that you made mistakes and you weren't perfect, but, there, but there's a table of mercy that's set before you in the eyes of all the people that are looking around you, a sense of peace knowing that your, your, your life is secure in the hand of God. None of that is real. You're there and you are filled with fear and torment, no strength. And when you look over your life, you see nothing but regret. The thought that fills your heart is that I have played the fool and I have erred exceedingly. I wasted the treasures and the resources that were put at my disposal at the hand of the living God. And I'm about to face eternity and give account for all of that. And I'm afraid. I pray that that isn't the destiny of any one of us that are here in this room right now. That every one of us can, can come to the end of ourself. That we can give our lives completely to him. Failures, warts, and all. And say, God, I want you to be the governor, the Lord of my life. I want to live in obedience to you. I do not want to come to the end of my life and have it look like this. So the woman came, verse 21, unto Saul, and she saw that he was sore troubled. And she said unto him, Behold, your handmaid has obeyed thy voice. And I have put my life in my hand and have hearkened unto thy words, which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, I pray thee, hearken thou also unto the voice of your handmaid and let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you might have strength when you go on your way. She, saw, she has some compassion. But he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with her 
compelled him, and he hearkened unto their voice. So he arose from the earth and sat up upon the bed. And the woman had a fat calf in the house, and she hasted and killed it and took flour and kneaded it and did break un bake unleavened bread thereof. And she brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they did eat. And then they rose up and they went on their way that night. Now chapter 29 quickly. It says, Now the Philistines, back to David, gathered together all their armies to Aphek. And the Israelites pitched by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistine passed on by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed on in the rear reward or in the, in the hinder, in the back with Achish. Then said the princes of the Philistines, what do these Hebrews here? Why, why are there Jews hanging out in the rear of our ranks? I mean, this is kind of funny. We have Israelites in front of us and Israelites in back of us. And so they go to Achish and they're like, why do you have David and these men here on our side? Is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which has been with me these days or these years? And Achish says, I have found no fault in him since he fell unto me unto this day. He's been fighting on our side for a year and four months. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. They were angry. And the princes of the Philistines said unto him, Make this fellow return, that he may go again to his place, which you have appointed him, and let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us, for wherewith should he reconcile himself unto his master? Should it not be with the heads of these men? Don't you understand, Achish? You're making a mistake here. This is a chance for David to get back on good terms with, with Israel. He'll just turn and fight against us. Get rid of him. You can't have this guy fight with us. This is the hand of the Lord delivering David from a terrible situation that he's gotten himself into. Is not this David of whom they sang one to another in dances, saying Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? So Achish called David... And said unto him, Surely, as the Lord lives, you have been upright. And thy going out and thy coming in with me in the host is good in my sight. For I have not found evil in thee since the day of thy coming unto me until this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's favor thee not. So David gets called into the office. He's been working for Achish for a year and four months. He's been advancing through the ranks. He's gotten promotion after promotion. He's up to be made partner at this point in his career. You do good on this deal, David. You're going to be my right-hand man. And now he gets called into the office. And he says, Achish, sit down to David. He says, man, you've been a great employee. I've loved having you work for me. Your service here has been great, though I didn't know you were lying to me the whole time and cooking the books and your reports and all were all false, you know, and the whole thing. And, you know, but you've worked your way up the line and, 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 and your service to me has been very pleasing. But the board has gotten together and we've discussed some things about you, some things about your past, some things about your way. And unfortunately, not only do we have to take you off this deal, but we got to let you go. We're going to have to cut you loose, David, in the middle of this thing. Now, put yourself in that office for a minute. You know, you're there, and you know everything's been false, everything's been a lie, but you're getting fired. What do you feel like when you're getting fired? Well, maybe you would, but David, you, you know, it never feels good to get fired, right? <laughs> you know? So, yeah, getting fired is horrible. Notice what David does here. Yeah. So David, verse 8, said unto Achish, but what have I done? 
<laughs> what? You're firing me? You can't fire me. I'm David. You know, you, you can't fire me. And what have you found in your servant so long as I have been with you unto this day that I may not go fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Now, imagine the emotions, David. Does he know? Did he find out? Does he, does he actually, did someone actually come and tell? He wants to know what the guy knows. So tell me, what do you really know about all the, do you know everything? I mean, what do you know? You know. And so Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are good in my sight. That's what I know. As an angel of God, notwithstanding the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Wherefore now, rise up early in the morning with your master's servants that are come with you, and as soon as you be up early in the morning and have light, depart, get out. So David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning to return into the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines then went up to Jezreel. David loses his job here, and it turns out to be the very providence of God to deliver him from a situation that was going to be extremely detrimental and also to set him up for what God's next phase is for him in his life. There are times, men, when you and I have setbacks, maybe the losing of a job like David or maybe some other thing happens to us, we lose a house or a deal falls through or something happens in our lives that we see as a complete setback to the direction that we're going or the direction that we have been going. What we need to see is beyond the temporary earthly nature of things and to see the hand of the Lord in the bigger picture of it. God allows negative setbacks to happen in our lives as a deliverance for us of things that we don't know are yet coming. That's something that he does each time. And also to set us up for what is next for us that we don't know yet, which is coming around the corner. For David, it's going to be the crown. Now you say, what about the fact that David's been living a lie? Does that just kind of get swept under the rug? I mean, he's off the hook here where he doesn't have to fight against Israel and he's kind of delivered and you're like, you know, whatever. But does God just kind of wink at a year and four months of David just kind of living a double life in the whole thing? Absolutely not. Next week, actually, I already have a title for next week's study. The title of next week's study is Go Clean It Up, David. (laughs) Because the mess that is made in Ziklag as a chastisement, as a result, as the fruit of David's double life and David's sin, is great. It almost wipes David out. What happens in the next chapter as David in this? David is providentially spared by fighting against the Philistines here by the grace of God in this whole thing. Now, as we close, what happened to David at this phase of his life is that he checked out of God's plan for his life. He said, I don't want it anymore. I'm done with it. He spilled it out on the ground. He said, I'm done with it. He broke. He literally broke here. He said, I can't do all this. And what this opens the door for in David's life now is for David to realize, I'm not strong enough to be the man that that God's called me to be. I'm not able to hold all this together. And that's what God was waiting for. Because now God is going to be able to do with David what David isn't strong enough to do for himself. Think about what it takes to run a kingdom. That's greater than what any any man could ever do or be. Think about what it takes to run a kingdom when, when you have to do it God's way. 
in a world that's contrary to God's way. That's bigger than what a man can handle. Every one of us in this room right now has a calling. Okay, God's placed us in this world for something. And ultimately, that calling is bigger than what you and I are capable of handling and, 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 um, and managing in and of our own strength. We must know what it is to be broken in the hand of God to realize that we can't hold it all together and to trust him that he's going to cause the light of the knowledge of the glory of God through the power and face of Jesus Christ to emanate through our lives in order to make us successful in the thing that he's called us to apart from our own strength. That's called spiritual rest. And God's called us into everyone, every, in, every one of us into that kind of a life. Now listen, guys. Listen. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, it says that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And what that means is that the gifts that God has given to you and I, and the calling that God has given to you and I, the place that we're to fulfill in this world, he's not going to change his mind. And that is both a comfort and a curse. It's a comfort because it means I'm not going to screw up so bad that God says, I'm taking all that away from you. I'm done with you. Get out of my sight. Okay? That's comfort. But here's the curse. Is that we, we have the freedom to rebel against God and rebel against that calling. To turn our lives away from the path of truth and righteousness. To lead a double life to give ourselves to some area of sin and have God still come through for our good. That's scary. Because what it can lead to is the thought that, oh, well, God must be okay with these decisions that I'm making right now because he's still coming through in my life. He's still delivering me from the, the trials. He's still keeping me from being exposed He's allowing me to go on this way and he's still working with me. Don't be deceived. The Bible says God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also what? That's right. If you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. What you reap is always greater than what you sow. Beware of the double life. David is going to reap the whirlwind in chapter 30 and have a huge mess to clean up from his time in Ziklag, checking out of the plan of God. The best thing to do is to lay the contents of your life at the foot of the cross. Come clean, no matter how hard it is to come clean and whatever it is that you're into. Because it's way harder when the exposure happens later than it is to just come clean now. And you're on the fast track then to being back in the place where God wants you to be. A year and four months of backsliding is not going to ruin David's life. It is a delay, but it's going to be trumped by God. Ultimately, it's going to work for his good. Brokenness, so essential, so essential that we be broken. Let God break you. Let him break you. Let go.